Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Indian Politics Explained with Swasti Pandey. So this episode is called Revocation of Special Status. Now we all know that the special status from the state of Jammu and Kashmir was revoked on 5th of August 2019 that is the articles 370 and 35A were abrogated so i wanted to do an episode around this topic for a very long time but i thought that releasing it on the exact date that the articles were abrogated would be fair enough so this particular episode will be released on 5th of august 2020 keep listening i would like to begin this episode with a question a rather simple one and i know that i cannot hear your answer but i would like you to be honest to yourself so here it is how many of you know of burhan wani now assuming you are an indian you would have heard his name at least once and a majority of indians know a lot about him now how many of you know of eklavya and i'm not talking about the eklavya from mahabharat i'm talking about the modern eklavya or radhika gill sagar sahi meluram satendra singh sathi so my guess is most of you don't know them so you know of kashmiri burhan wani but you don't know these five kashmiris so you do not know that for 70 years these are the kashmiris the hindus the dalits the refugees whose human rights were brutally trampled upon by the indian state through article 370 and article 35a article 370 of the constitution of india gave special status to the state of jammu and kashmir it allowed the indian administered region jurisdiction to make its own laws in all matters except finance defense foreign affairs and communications it established a separate constitution and a separate flag and denied property rights in the region to outsiders that means the residents of the state lived under a different set of laws from the rest of the country in matters such as property ownership and citizenship article 35a of the constitution of india was an article that empowered the jammu and kashmir states legislature to define permanent residence of the state and provide special rights and privileges to those residents now when we talk about the abrogation of article 370 and article 35a or when we talk about jammu and kashmir in general we cannot exclude the kashmiri pandits exodus when my friends who oppose the abrogation say that the people of kashmir have not been able to use whatsapp i just want to ask what about the pandits who could not use their homes they say that Today's youth of Kashmir picks up guns and becomes militants because of the dire circumstances our government put them in. I just want to remind them 
that the Kashmiri pundits did not pick up guns when they were thrown out of the land that was lawfully theirs. When their women were raped, when their children were murdered and thrown on the streets, when on 19th January 1990, millions of people came out on the streets to bang on the doors of Kashmiri pundits, they did not pick up guns, leave alone becoming militants. The history of the pundits of Kashmir goes back to the period when the Aryan Saraswat Brahmans, who used to live on the banks of Saraswati River, migrated to Kashmir. The Kashmiri pundits, who formed a significant part of Kashmir, were closely associated with its culture, customs and traditions. The very first struggle for survival faced by the Kashmiri pundits was during the reign of Abhimanyu. During the 14th century, Kashmir came in contact with the Muslim invaders who took advantage of the weak administration of the Lohra dynasty and established their rule. They then started planting their roots in the Kashmiri community. During 1301 to 1320, the rulers encouraged the influx of Muslims into the valley to counter the supremacy of the Brahmins. Most of the rulers tried to do away with them. Some of them even went as far as adopting methods similar to the infamous genocide of the Jews in Germany during Hitler's rule. These rulers tried to eradicate all Hindus from Kashmir. Ali Shah who ruled from 1413 to 1430 in Kashmir, carried out killings, conversions and forced taxations on the pundits. He forbade ceremonies and enforced conversion on the pundits. Fearing conversion, many killed themselves. Many pundits fled from their homes. This oppression of the pundits was one of the most terrible incidences of mass exodus. Pandits were banned from attending religious prayers and meetings in temples. In the following years, the Kashmiri Pandits suffered terribly under the rule of Shamsuddin Iraqi and Musa Raina. The Pandits were stripped off of their religious identity and scriptures were burnt. Those who opposed were slaughtered. The period between 1753 and 1819 was again a period of cruelty. Afghan rule of this period victimized the pundits in the worst form. This was a period of genocide. History provides various instances of parents shaving off their daughters' heads and cutting their nose so as to destroy their beauty and to save them from disgrace. Sikh rule in Kashmir was a period of relief for the pundits after years of torture and barbarism. By this time, a majority of the population had already converted to Islam and most had left the state. Those who remained claimed back their honour by rebuilding their homes and temples. In 1846, during the Dogra rule, the pundits 
were again targeted when their political, religious and cultural freedom was curtailed. The communal disturbances of 1931 pushed many pundits towards migration. Their homes were looted, shops burnt, women raped, children abducted and the whole community tortured. In order to establish the dominance of one community in Kashmir, the inhuman acts against the pundits which had been prevailing since ancient times turned brutal and barbaric in what we can call the genocide of the pundits. The Kashmiri pundits with a history of over 5,000 years in Kashmir were made victims once again in one of the ugliest chapters of Indian history. On September 14th, 1989, Tikalal Taplu, who was a lawyer, a BJP member and a leader of Kashmiri Pandit community, was shot dead by the JKLF in his home in Srinagar. He was murdered for a number of reasons, important being that he was a well-known and a visible leader of the Kashmiri Pandit community and commanded respect from every quarter of the society. Soon after, Nilkant Ganju, a judge of the Srinagar High Court who had sentenced Makbul Bhatt to death, was shot dead. For those of you who do not know Makbul Bhatt, he was a Kashmiri separatist and founder of the separatist organization National Liberation Front. On the night of 19th January 1990, screaming from loudspeakers in crowded streets was a message for the Sikhs and the Hindus living in Kashmir. Either convert to Islam, leave the land or die. The threats had been coming in for a long time, but the night of January 19 is said to have seen a demented assault of a different level. Even 30 years later, Kashmiri pundits shiver remembering the night that forced them into exodus. In the book Kashmir, its abrogenies and their exodus, Kalnal Tej Kumar Tiku described the fateful night as follows. As the night fell, the microscopic community became panic-stricken when the valley began reverberating with war cries of Islamists who had stage-managed the whole event with great care, choosing its timing and the slogans to be used. A host of highly provocative communal and threatening slogans interspersed with martial songs incited the Muslims to come out on the streets and break the chains of slavery. These exhortations urged the faithful to give a final push to the Kafirs in order to ring in the true Islamic order. These slogans were mixed with precise and unambiguous threats to pundits. They were presented with three choices. Convert to Islam, leave the place 
or die. Tens of thousands of Kashmiri Muslims poured into the streets of the valley, shouting death to India and death to Kafirs. This was a humanitarian tragedy as lakhs of pundits lost their homes, jobs, land and were forced to live like refugees in their own country. After almost three decades, the Kashmiri Pandit community has still not been able to return to their ancestral land. But nothing in India happens without having a political angle and this indeed was a political agenda. Sheikh Abdullah, who was a prominent and almost the central figure in the politics of Kashmir by 1980, he started to think that maybe his political control over the state of Jammu and Kashmir was getting loose. So he changed his outlook of secular politics to radical politics and started referring the pundits as Mukbir or others. After Sheikh Abdullah's death in 1982, his son, Farooq Abdullah, becomes the leader of his National Conference Party. And in the elections of 1983, NCP, under the leadership of Farooq Abdullah, claimed victory. The governor during this time was Jagmohan. He again became the governor of Jammu and Kashmir in 1990. So in 1984, Centre was governed by Indira Gandhi's Congress and Jammu and Kashmir was being governed by Farooq Abdullah's NCP. Just eight months into the term, Farooq Abdullah's government was brought down by the joint efforts of Congress and Ghulam Muhammad Shah, who was a member of NCP and brother-in-law to Farooq Abdullah. Thus, Gul Shah became the new chief minister. But his administration did not have the people's mandate. During his administration, many riots were reported in various areas where Kashmiri Hindus were killed and their properties and temples were destroyed. Thus, in March 1986, Congress withdrew their support to Gul Shah and governor's rule was imposed. Later, in December 1986, Farooq Rajiv Accord was signed and Farooq Abdullah was reappointed as the chief minister. Now, in the Jammu and Kashmir Assembly elections of March 1987, NCP and Congress contested jointly. On the opposite side, a union was formed known as the Muslim United Front or MUF. MUF included all the different fronts that were unhappy with the state government, the union government and the policies of early 1980s. Most of the leaders of MUF who contested elections later became terrorists. But it was a popular belief that there was a wave of MUF and they would win the elections. But when the results were declared, the coalition of Congress and NCP won the elections. It is said that these elections were fraudulent. Now because of this, the prominent leaders of Muslim United Front, like Sayyid Salahuddin, 
who later became the commander of terrorist organization Hizbul Mujahideen. Salahuddin's com- campaign manager Yasin Malik, Sayyid Ali Jilani, who is a leader of Hurriyat. Now, when these famous leaders lost in the elections, they lost all faith from the state. Thus, these elections of 1987 are considered to be an important movement in the Kashmir's history. And thus, the Islamization of Kashmir gained its space. Along with this, there were many Islamic movements happening on a global scale that motivated Islamic radicals in Kashmir, like the Afghani Jihad supported by Pakistan and the United States of America against the Soviet. There was also an Islamic revolution in Iran that established an Islamic government over there. So such movements only motivated the Islamic radicals in Kashmir. Now, organizations like JKLF and Jamaat-e-Islami Kashmir mobilized the fast-growing anti-India sentiments among the Kashmiri population. In between 1987 and 1990, the situation deteriorated even further. The MUF became more radical day by day. The Kashmiri militants killed anyone who openly expressed pro-India politics. Kashmiri pundits were targeted specifically. By 1988, insurgency had set in with open demands of independence and Islamic rule in Kashmir being voiced on the streets. Now, Pakistan also played an important role in further radicalizing Kashmir. Benazir Bhutto, the Prime Minister of Pakistan, made many speeches promoting jihad in Kashmir and motivating young Kashmiris to fight India. Hundreds of young Islamic militants were recruited by madrasas to do the ISI's work in Kashmir. Now, as I did mention earlier, there were some prominent killings in 1989 by militants. On 14th September 1989, Pandit Tikalal Taplu was shot dead. On 2nd October 1989, Pandit Neelkant Ganju was shot dead. On 27 December 1989, journalist, lawyer Prem Nath Bhatt was shot dead. Now, if we look at the politics during this time on the national level, Mufti Muhammad Saeed, now a member of VP Singh's government, advised the Prime Minister to appoint Jagmohan as the governor again. On 19th January 1990, Jagmohan was appointed the governor of Jammu and Kashmir. He reached Jammu but could not reach Srinagar due to bad weather. On the same day, Chief Minister Farooq Abdullah resigned in protest against the appointment of Jagmohan as the governor. Due to this, the government machinery in Jammu and Kashmir was sort of paralyzed. On Jan 4, 1990, the local Urdu newspapers 
in Jammu and Kashmir published a press release by Hizbul Mujahideen asking all pundits to leave the valley immediately. Masked men carrying AK-47s took out military-type marches openly, threatening pundits to leave. Hit lists of pundits were in circulation publicly. Bomb explosions and firing in areas where pundits were living became a daily occurrence. Explosive and inflammatory speeches were being broadcasted from public address systems of the mosques. Then came the night of January 19, 1990. Highly provocative communal and threatening slogans were raised all across the valley in unified and planned manner. Speeches were made extolling Pakistan, supremacy of Islam against Hinduism and asking the pundits to leave. The Kashmiri Pandit community decided to leave. On Jan 20, 1990, the first stream began leaving the valley with hastily packed belongings in whatever transport they could find. A second, larger wave left in March and April after more pundits were killed. However, the killings of Kashmiri pundits continued till 2004. Different sources say that almost 2 to 3 lakh Kashmiri pundits left the valley. The government data states that 214 Kashmiri pundits were killed between 1989 and 2004, but other sources say that at least 7 to 800 Kashmiri pundits were murdered just between November 1989 to April 1990. India has seen several changes ever since that fateful night in 1990. New governments have come and gone. Multiple developments have come forth nationwide, but crores of Kashmiri pundits who were chased out of their homes have still not been able to find a way back home. But the abrogation of Article 317, Article 35A provides some hope to these families after all. Having said all of this, even though providing justice to the Kashmiri Pandits is one of the most important reasons behind the abrogation of Article 370 and Article 35A, there are several other reasons as well. With the abrogation of Article 370 and Article 35A, the state is now divided into two union territories, Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. The abrogation of Article 370 would pave the way for the people of Jammu and Kashmir, so far having led the lives of second-class citizens to join the mainstream of the nation. Important laws passed by the parliament over years, including Right to Information Act, SCST Act, and those pertaining to domestic violence will now be implemented there as well. The abrogation would also give Dalits the right to join the judicial and the administrative services, something which they were not allowed to do previously. There were provisions that Dalits from Punjab who went to Jammu and Kashmir cannot do any work other than being sanitation workers. 
rights of women rights of the lgbtq community rights of the minorities right to information will be restored in jammu and kashmir that have been denied to jammu and kashmir's citizens for decades so that was about it for this episode in this episode basically i wanted to talk about the side of kashmir that isn't being talked about even today maybe because a false narrative is being spread quite aggressively by people with political agendas and this narrative has made people believe that the sinners are the victims for any questions reviews or suggestions you may contact me through my email which is spn Three zero zero nine at the rate gmail dot com. Stay tuned for the next episode, and until then, bye.